3: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Tuesday, September 26th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, members of the United Auto Workers Union in Brandon join the nationwide strike against the big three automakers. Then the rates which state and local governments pay into the public employees' retirement system is about to increase shortly. Plus, an aerospace partnership that span a many, many years has come to a close. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Employees at the General Motors Distribution Center in Brandon are on strike. It's one of 38 automobile distribution plants in the nation where members of the UAW are picketing, demanding higher pay and job security. Brian Finley is a parts worker at the center and is standing on the picket line. He tells our Lacey Alexander they need better contracts to ensure quality pay and job expectations.
4: We've been stuck at the bottom for a long time. Big CEOs making 29 million a year while we're still living paycheck to paycheck, not knowing where our next meal is coming from. We need our fair share. I mean, these CEOs, they don't build these cars. They don't pick these parts. You know, they make 29 million at the expense of our bodies. So it's time for our fair share.
5: How long have you worked here? Uh, Two years. And in those two years, has any improvement come at all?
4: No, this is my first contract right here.
5: Okay, so tell me why it's important in Mississippi specifically. This is UAW is happening all over the country right now. What is important about Mississippi specifically, seeing the fruits of y'all's
4: efforts? Well, uh, labor's not going up, but, you know, the cost of living is. I mean, you can go in a grocery store nowadays and $100 come out with two bags. McDonald's, they're hiring $21 an hour, and I'm making less than that. I almost make just about as much striking than I would a 40-hour week in there.
5: And have you guys brought forward any terms? What kind of communication has happened between you and the people you're striking
4: against? We're, we're going in the right direction. There's been movement. Uh, we're not where we need to be yet, but definitely movement in the right direction.
5: How long do you guys expect to be out here?
4: As long as it takes. And
5: How long have you guys been out here?
4: Uh, two weeks. This been be the second week.
5: Oh, wow. Okay. And at the end of all this, do you think it'll be worth it? Oh, yes, ma'am. Best-case scenario,
4: what comes from this? Uh, better life. You know, my kids, uh, you know, I, I bust my butt in there every week, 40 hours a week plus, and it's all for my family. And I'm just tired of struggling paycheck to paycheck, and my kids not getting what they deserve.
3: On the picket line also is Ron Fisher, a union member, helping ensure everyone is safe during the, uh, the protest. He says the company has made several changes in recent years that have hurt employees job security and our cost of living back we'd like to
1: see the tears go away where everybody makes the same doing the same work and when we're just looking for a better way of life and 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 we created the middle class in the 30s uh, and we want to keep that that momentum going Uh, we've been stagnant for the last 10 years and now it's time for something to move
5: what do you mean by stagnant
1: we our wages hasn't changed at all.
5: Have you been given any explanation for why that is?
1: They say it costs so much to go to EVs that they're having to use that money to reinvest in the companies to pay for the transition from ICEs to EVs. So other than that, nothing.
5: So y'all haven't, y'all haven't talked to CEOs, you haven't heard from them, you haven't gotten a response?
1: Well, they're doing that in the Detroit level
5: gotcha so what can mississippians specifically learn from y'all striking
1: we had four gm plants in mississippi during the 70s 80s well mid 70s through the 80s and through the 90s and all four were closed and this one was put back as a distribution plant you had one at clinton one at brookhaven one in laurel and one in meridian they're all gone they all that work went to mexico and we're just trying to save what we can.
5: Why? Why did they go? Was the pay not high enough? Were they not turning a profit? What happened? They
1: made more money by taking it to Mexico than they could here. They said they could pay people. They could take the business to Mexico and make three times more than what they could make if they kept it here. So they just took all all your parts manufacturing. They 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 kind of tried to break the unions by closing them and sending them to Mexico.
5: So they're really. Like you saying, they're exploiting workers from multiple countries. Yes,
1: and they want to use Mexico as a stepping stone because once they get there, they're up under uh, Mexican trade laws, and then they go everywhere else from there. So they don't stay in Mexico. Yeah. They do for a while, for two or three years, then they move it on somewhere else.
5: Man, so if you could sit down with a CEO right now, what would you
1: say? Uh, we just want our fair share. Uh, you know, we made sacrifices. Our family made sacrifices uh, to keep the company going. And we haven't seen any return from that.
5: What does um, your fair share look like?
1: Uh, well, our cost of living uh, was was given up in 2009. So you can just imagine if you had that cost of living back that many years where we would be at at our pay scale now. Uh, it would be $10 more an hour than what we're making now.
5: Is there anything that Mississippi lawmakers need to do to protect people like you?
1: Um. Uh, Sure. I mean, they need to try to get highways jobs brought into the state, reinvest in the state, to bring the to bring to make it, these companies want to come here. Uh, you got your transplants coming in here, taking advantage of people, not paying them the wages that, that, that the big three pays. Uh, they usually pay around five to eight dollars less an hour, and and every time they're threatened to organize, they threaten they're going to close and leave. So, I mean, you know, there needs to be some laws put in place where they can't just threaten people that if you organize, we're going to close you. That, that should be against the law. They shouldn't allow them to do that.
3: Ron Fisher is an employee at the General Motors Distribution Center in Brandon and a member of the United Auto Workers Union. Coming up, the rates which state and local governments pay into the public employees' retirement system will increase. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join the conversation every Tuesday at 11 as we dissect issues that are important to you and your family. That's Relatively Speaking, Tuesdays only on MPB Think Radio.
0: What's your favorite type of music? The old standards? Country? A specific type of jazz? Maybe you love classical In addition to Think and Radio reading service, we broadcast MPB Music Radio. Listen live to essential and emerging artists from your HD radio, our app, or from mpbonline.org.
3: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The public employees' retirement system of Mississippi will have to increase contributions to pay the thousands of beneficiaries in the program. Retirement costs are rising, and so is the average life expectancy, keeping people on the rolls longer. And more are retiring right now as many baby boomers have maxed out their benefits within the state system. PERS Executive Director Ray Higgins shared how the state will need to address these growing pains at a session with news reporters.
2: Around 144,000 uh, in active membership. We have over 100,000 retirees. The average PERS benefit uh, is around 26,000, and that's including the additional benefit commonly referred to as the cost of living adjustment. And the average salary for a PERS member is around 45,000. So that gives you a few metrics about where we are. We also have a 61% funded ratio. By funded ratio, I'm talking about the actuarial funded ratio. Right now it's around 61%. We've hovered it around that amount for the last several years, and it's comparing the actuarial assets to the actuarial liabilities. In other words, the difference between what you have and what you need, and that's around 61%. I want to focus on the other 39% of that funded ratio. The other 39% is basically the unfunded unfunded actuarial accrued liability nicknamed the unfunded and for us that's a little over 20 billion it's not uncommon for a pension system certainly one as mature as pers to have an unfunded it's just something that you have to monitor and together we have to manage it together I know it could be frustrating for some but uh, it took decades to get here and it's not going away anytime soon we just got to work together to manage it and uh, what I want to do now in talking about where we've been is Tell the story of how I thought, how I think we got to the 20 billion. First thing I'll say is PERS financially in that regard is an accumulation of everything that's happened since we were created about 70 years ago. Every law change, every benefit increase, every assumption change, all the actuarial experience, all the changes within the system, every economic downturn, every economic uh, expansion. It's a big accumulation of that. I'm going to focus on the last quarter century or so.
3: Around 10% of the state's population are current or former state employees and invested in the PERS system. In the late 90s and early 2000s, Higgins says there were benefits added to the law for PERS without any additional funding set aside.
2: Now you can make the case that the cost has been baked into the rate since that time, and I suppose that's true, and that's part of the reason that they've gone up and may continue to go up, but there was additional benefits placed in the law without funding at the time. And then in the two subsequent decades that followed, in some ways, you had a little bit of a perfect administrative storm creating a challenge in many ways. You had a declining active-to-retiree ratio, meaning you had fewer actives paying into the system. You had more retirees coming onto the system and retirees living longer. Now, that's a good thing, but it does have a cost. Just over the last 10 years or so, the number of actives has decreased by 10 or 11%, And the number of retirees has increased by 26 or 27 percent. It would depend on the time frame you use, but you get the feel of that. You also had several economic downturns, including the Great Recession. And then lastly, you had what I'll sum up as a more conservative approach to public pensions. Not a bad thing necessarily for a conservative state like Mississippi, not necessarily a bad thing for PERS, but it does have a cost. And I'll just mention two areas one being the amortization method, the other being the assumed rate of return. By amortization method, it uh, basically move from an open approach to a closed approach, an open meaning, meaning that you essentially refinance the liability each year. A closed approach means that you're having the goal or aim to eventually pay that liability off. And the assumed rate of return is exactly that. It's, a, it's arguably the most important assumption that we have because it is not only the uh, rate at which your investments are assumed to grow long term, but it also doubles as a discount rate. So, a very important assumption and over the last 20 years, there's been a, a lot of downward pressure on that. So if you sum that up, you have unfunded benefits, declining active retiree ratio, several economic downturns, including the Great Recession, and then a more conservative <laughs> approach to public pensions. And so that and a handful are the reasons that I think are what helped lead to the 2020 billion.
3: The- PERS board tried to implement rate changes late last year to accommodate those losses, but they reversed course after the legislature balked at the increase and threatened to strip away some of the PERS board's powers. Higgins says they will be requesting funds from the legislature to make up the difference.
2: First, let me sum it up, I guess, by saying that we are at PERS increasing the contribution rates, improving assumptions, and recommending a new benefit structure to help maintain the defined benefit pension plan, and better sustain PERS long-term. But to unpack that a little bit, really, truly, we've been looking at different scenarios, options, different ideas, and and different recommendations, really, since shortly after I joined PERS in 2018, but especially the last couple years. But the more recent focus, and I guess the renewed interest and the renewed focus, started last December when the employer contribution rate was raised again. And and still a little bit of work in progress, but do have several items to report uh, with you today after working with the board. Um, One is we voted to phase in the previously approved employer contribution rate at just 2% a year starting July 2024, so next July 2% a year until it reaches the amount recommended by the actuary and approved by the board. So that will mean that in July the rate will only go from 17.4% up to 19.4% i recommended the phase-in. I plan to continue to recommend the phase-in. I think as long as it's actuarially sound, that's a good approach because the money's still coming to PERS. It also gives our employers, the cities, the counties, the others time to be aware and to plan and have whatever conversations that, that leaders and policymakers and others may need to have. We also voted to adopt and accept the actuarial recommendations from the last experience study, which includes lowering the assumed rate of return from 7.55 down to 7%. And we needed to do that. It's important to have good assumptions. There is a cost to that, but it's important to have good assumptions. Uh, and prior to that, there are those that would say the 7.55 was too high. It had been recommended uh, at 7.55. We were the highest or one of the highest in the nation compared to other public pension
3: He says the most viable option they are considering is a new tier five retirement plan for any new state employees.
2: We're just talking about um, a benefit structure, a a different benefit structure for future employees, and that's still a little bit of a work in progress because we need to come back to the board at the next meeting and, and provide some examples and some details. But I believe, for all intents and purposes, that has been decided in the direction that we're going to go and recommend, which will be a new tier five. Uh, which will be a slightly different, slightly reduced defined benefit pension plan for new employees, which will be very similar to current tier four, with the only differences being four-year vesting instead of eight, and then um, uh, uh, not a guaranteed COLA, but instead the possibility of a COLA, uh, which would also be tied to CPI, capped at 3%, and also based on funding availability at the time.
3: Ray Higgins is executive director of the Public Employees Retirement System of Mississippi. Coming up, a 25-year aerospace partnership is coming to a close in Mississippi. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
5: Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app not miss any episode. There are many ways to support the programs you love on MPB. Becoming a member, starting a monthly gift, donate a vehicle you don't need anymore, and now donating a piece of land or other real estate. To learn more about the advantages of donating real estate, just click Donate Now from mpbonline.org.
3: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The John C. Stennis Space Center in Hancock County has announced they are at the end of a 25-year partnership with Aerojet Rocketdyne. Rocketdyne was the first private company to partner with NASA and Mississippi to test rockets on the facility's test stands. Teams of engineers work together on developing the RS-68 rocket for the United States Department of Defense. While this rocket never Contributed directly to space travel. Stennis Propulsion Testing Lead Kevin Power says it opened the door for future partnerships in aerospace engineering.
0: That was our first commercial agreement with a company, and we basically gave them our B1 test stand to use to test the rs 68 engine. So it's the first time that we did that kind of a commercial partnership. They just finished testing in 2021, and it's uh, about a 25 year um, program that they led there doing that. Our 68 engine testing for the uh, Delta IV rocket. Her Rocketdyne has been a great partner over the past 25 years, and it's been up there with us, working with us. So we have a good relationship with that. So it helped us establish that partnership with agreement and how it works, what NASA does, what's our responsibilities, what's the commercial company's responsibilities. And that's transition, like you said, I guess our next test, was our next customer was in 99 and we've been doing this since then with many commercial customers over the years. So we've kind of built that cadence and the way of doing things. Uh, but Aerojet rocket Nine was, you know, the first one there that uh, we partnered with and it also helped support NASA's mission, which is, uh, you know, supporting the commercial launch industry. And in the case of our 68 inch, and that was really an air force program that that supported. So, a lot of Air Force launches, national reconnaissance organizations. So it's helping the nation, you know, meet their needs in space.
3: Do you see doing more testing in the future with them?
0: uh, They they are out there. They actually build the RS-25 engine, so they're integral. It's uh, a different relationship on A1 test stand where they provide the engine and the engine support, and NASA and NASA's um, test operations contract actually conduct the test but they are integral to that testing there. So they are continuing to work with us out there. And the same thing, those same engines are used on, were used on the core stage testing. And they also make the RL-10 engine, which will be used on the upper stage test. So yeah, they'll be out there for quite a while, play an integral role with us. And the RS-25 program when they won, that will continue for the life of the uh, space launch system. So yeah, Aerojet, Rocketdyne, um, now they're part of the L3 Harris Corporation. They actually assemble those engines at Stennis and bring them out to the test stand and test them.
3: Talking about career paths, are you able to hire Mississippians for these engineering and science jobs?
0: Yes, yes. You know, Stennis is hired. I'm from originally from Louisiana, so we probably have about 30 percent of the people live in Louisiana and— Some live outside of Louisiana, Mississippi, but, you know, the balance kind of lives in the Mississippi area, you know, either north or south or kind of east from there. So it's mostly local people, a lot of people. In fact, myself, I could not find a job, and I was out of town for four years before I made my way back and uh, was able to get a job at Stennis, and uh, I currently live in Louisiana. So I'm back home with my family. And the commercial customers that are coming out there now, like Relativity and Rocket Lab, they're leasing our test stands and they're hiring a lot of people um, from the local area. Um, so, in fact, you know, one of the kids that graduated from my older son from uh, high school ended up seeing him out there working now as an engineer. So, it, it's good to see that to have these high tech, you know, high paying jobs in the local area of Louisiana, Mississippi. You know, it's uh, I, I didn't talk much about E Complex, but that's where we do a lot of the. Most of our commercial work, so we've supported a number of uh, companies over the years there. And um, that's kind of what we're seeing as NASA's future. Since we have these facilities, the government owns them, and part of our mission is to uh, enable commercial access to space. That's where we see, you know, a lot of our work in the future going to be. And um, also for underutilized facilities at Stennis, like I mentioned, the A2 test ban, that has been turned over to Relativity. Our A3 test complex has been ch- turned over to Rocket Lab. So those are tenant agreements we put in place for, you know, a number of years, like seven to ten years. And they take those stands, and it's basically like leasing a house. They can do what they want with it, and they turn it back to us at the end of the lease in pretty much the same condition or like condition that we accept. But they'll run their own tests out there. They'll hire their own people and do everything, And NASA, Stennis, and our contractors, we're available to support them if needed. If they don't have the expertise in-house, they can come to us for support. So it's a good working relationship. A lot of assets available to them that they may not have in-house, like I mentioned. But we kind of see that as our future, supporting these tenants and also doing our commercial testing under the uh, Space Act agreements.
3: I see. Is there any way for Stennis to foster a program that would bring in young people? What should they know if they want to pursue this field?
0: Well, there's something called the Pathways Program, and NASA basically advertises these out in USA Jobs. Um, they can go to NASA and inquire about opportunities with NASA. And throughout the country, all the different NASA facilities, including Stennis, we offer opportunities for college students to come in there. It used to be some high school students. I'm not sure if we're still doing that or not. But the high school or the college students, I'm sorry, you know, will come in and take a job with NASA and work with us. And often those people end up graduating and coming to work out there with us. We've got a few that have done that, but they get great experience that they can, you know, use to get a, a good job in the future. So, you know, they can start at that level there with the Pathways Program.
3: What do they need to study? What Mainly types of subjects?
0: But the Pathways Program has opportunities for people in procurement and business-related fields. Um, most of the jobs, you know, out dentists. Stennis, um, I say I most of them, are a good bit of the ones in the Stennis uh, or on the technical nature. But we have all the support from the procurement and finance, you know, Office of Communications, so there's many other opportunities out there without the technical
3: degrees.: Kevin Powers, propulsion test Lead at the John C. Stennis Space Center in Hancock County. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.